we're going to be doing that as well. Um, well, uh, maybe the, uh, I, a couple, let's see, last week I started a new series called Promises, Promises, and it's talking about God's covenant love, and maybe the best picture that we can learn to relate to and understand the idea of covenant would be that of marriage, and um, marriage is the closest thing that we have, um, at least in practice, to really understanding what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. Uh, but I, I read a funny story that uh, I feel like kind of captures it well, and it was a story about a couple who had been married for 35 years. And they decided, you know what, um, uh, we probably need some help. We need someone to referee our relationship, and we need to get ourselves into some counseling. So they show up at the therapist's office, and, and the counselor looks at them and says, you know, how, how can I help you? You know, kind of, what's going on? And um, the lady looks at the guy, and he kind of looks, and then she just launches in. She just, I mean, like doesn't hold back. And she just goes through this kind of tirade, this list, about all of the things that uh, her needs are unmet. And he sat there quietly and just endured it, but she just kept going about um, emotional distance and unavailability and a lack of intimacy and not good listening skills and not good verbal skills and on and on. And, and it went on for quite a while, and then finally the, the, you know, the counselor just kind of looks, and he waits, and he pauses, and he lets it be uncomfortably silent to see if there was going to be any defense, to see if, there, if she was done. But at that point, she had kind of unloaded like the chamber was empty. There was no bullets left to fire, and um, he had really no response. So the counselor, in kind of um, an unusual moment, I'm not sure what counseling school he came out of, stepped around to kind of his desk and came around, and he stood the wife up and then went ahead to proceed to plant this long, really passionate, made-for-TV kiss on her. And he just held her and kissed, and, uh, you know, the husband's sitting there with this kind of raised eyebrow, and, and then he finally lets go, and she kind of sits back down in, in a daze, um, and the counselor looks at the guy and he goes, now that is what your wife needs at least three times a week. Can you do that? And the guy says, well, I, I, could, I could get her here on Monday and Wednesday, but I fish on Fridays. <laughs> um, and I thought, that is such a perfect picture of the struggle we encounter when we come into not just relationship, but this idea of covenant relationship. Because if we say it's supposed to be like a marriage to God, if our picture of marriage is struggling, is run out of gas, is nothing but turmoil, feels like a ball and chain or whatever, I think at some point we run out of um, kind of a, a, a ability to grow in intimacy with God. And here's what I think, is that when God gave us covenant relationship, he painted a picture of potential. Now the world that God created was good, but it was full of potential. And when he gave us covenant love, it represented the way that God intended the world to be. So he creates all of things, and then he creates us to be a part of drawing out the potential in creation to draw out the goodness. Things like peace and mercy, for hope and community, for to be people of justice. And so covenant relationship represents God's partnership that he wants to restore and repair um, not only our own hearts, 
our own lives, but to be a part of the putting the pieces back of a broken world. And so whenever we talk about covenant, you have on one side commitments being made and promises being offered. God makes promises and looks for commitment to walk in oneness. But the problem is we have a hard time staying in partnership with God. We, we tend to want to recalibrate and maybe do some things on our own. And God's always trying to invite us into this place And so as a result, we're stuck. We're stuck in a world of injustice. We're stuck in a world of violence and of greed and of corruption. Because ever since since sin entered the world, you and I live with shame, fear, and regret. And that becomes the dominant narrative in which we live our lives. God wanted to establish covenant love covenant relationship, this partnership, so that we can be made whole, but we can be a part of the salvation of a broken humanity. And the narrative of of corruption and greed and injustice doesn't have to be the final word. So when we read the end of the Bible, it's about this new thing, this new humanity. The end of the Bible is actually the beginning of our story as God intended it. Really significant. And so here you go. Uh, So you, you start out with all this potential and God creates covenant relationship because there has to be something better than what you and I experience. And so God looked around and it said that he was really sad uh, and he started this covenant with Noah. So you get six chapters in to Genesis and all of a sudden there is this wickedness, this corruption, and God's brokenhearted because he said, this is not what I intended. And so he decides to flood the entire earth. And Now, this is the only covenant that didn't actually ask for a commitment. He just made a promise. So brokenhearted that he says, I promise for all of creation, I'll never flood the earth again. I will figure out a way to work out justice and mercy without just universal judgment. So he delays the idea of personal accountability, but he invites us to personal responsibility. So he makes this covenant with with Noah, looking for this participation. But by the time, and that's kind of Genesis 6 through 8, but by you get get to Genesis 9, corruption and, and wickedness was just the new, it was the new normal again. And God's going, how... How do I solve this now? And so in Genesis 9, you have the Tower of Babel. The word Babel means confusion. And here's what had happened. These people were growing so arrogant that they had this breakthrough in technology. And so they had moved from building, like stacking rocks, to brick and mortar. And they had this new engineering technology to build bigger buildings. And so as to overthrow or to kind of you know, raise a middle finger to God, they wanted to build something to be as great as God, and they were going to build this huge tower, but it was in defiance of God. So here's what God does. He confuses all of the languages. He says, I have got to save these people from destroying themselves, and the only way to do that is to break the kids up. Do you ever have that moment as a a parent where where you just send the kids to their room just, just to keep the peace in the home? And that's essentially what God does. He creates a confusion so that there's not one language, but separate languages that develop into separate cultures in the hopes that there would be one people group that would become the light to all the other tribes and tongues and cultures. That's Genesis 9. So now he makes his second covenant. And the second covenant he has is with Abraham. 
after scattering all the nations, God essentially makes a promise. And he calls out Abraham, who is a ridiculously ordinary man. We read about him as, as his righteousness being credited to him in Hebrews 11. But there was really something profoundly ordinary about him. And so I like to think of this as righteousness kind of for the rest of us. And so he calls out Abraham and he makes essentially three promises that he wants to do through Abraham and Abraham's family. So the first covenant God makes is with Noah and, and, he, and he just makes a promise saying, I'll never have to have universal judgment again. The second one is now that he's trying to raise up, he wants to set apart families. And he's going to say, I'm basically promising you that you will have a huge family. And secondly, that you will get uh, this piece of land that I have promised. And that land is going to shape your spiritual and physical inheritance. There's going to be something identifiable about you. As, as a family and as a people, and it's going to represent me. In other words, when people see you, they're going to go, oh, that must be what God is like. And then thirdly, he says, I'm going to universally bless all people. Now, I would just encourage you, if you want to pull out your app or if you have the phone, one of the rhythms that we're trying to practice is apprenticing. You can listen along and try and absorb some of it, um, but maybe the best way that you'll eventually be able to um, share it is if you write it down or if you take some kind of notes. And the reason I think that's important is I would love for us to come into teaching moments, not with the idea of is Dave on or off, but is the thought of what if I'm entrusted with passing this on to someone else? So the idea of covenant love has such a, 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 a hinge pin importance over our relationship. So what God does is I want to bless you and you will be a blessing. In other words, if there is goodness and mercy and abundance in our lives, it was not supposed to end with you it was supposed to flow through you so Abraham and this was extremely you know noteworthy is that I'm going to make you a, a, a man a, a father of many nations um, and that's a really significant promise because that was a huge status sign to have a large family but it was going to be a generational blessing it was going to go on for descendants talks about kings will come and eventually we'll see in a couple weeks that king david came out of this same line and eventually ends up in the covenant that we have the new covenant with jesus so it's important to understand that when god sets apart a family the idea was i will bless you and through your family will bless others that's how i want to work out my goodness in this broken and fractured world. And so um, what happens is, is that you have this picture of God forming this covenant and then he makes a statement and wants to form and the covenant is that of circumcision. And there's this verse that we get to in Genesis 9. He says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you and every male among you shall be circumcised. It will be the sign you know, the sign, right? And at that point, I'm thinking, can't it just be a cross around my neck? If I'm a grown man and he's going, no, this is going to be the sign, you're like, hey, this decorative cross works great. No, this will be the sign of the covenant between me and you, an everlasting covenant. It's a really strong picture. Now, here's what had happened. 
He's roughly 75 years old. They don't have any kids. But God makes this promise about being the father of many nations. This is a mildly familiar story. And God, in his perfect timing, and I use that term loosely because we don't understand it, we don't like it, we don't always get it, we can't always appreciate it, but God's promise is not necessarily um, coming to fruition. So Sarah, a wife, takes the maidservant, this teenage girl, and inserts her into the tent of Abraham, and they have a son, uh, Ishmael, about the age of, uh, about 13 years into it. So halfway through the waiting period, they have this promise. Now, if you fast forward, and, and of course, what they're trying to do is manufacture God's blessing. They're trying to fulfill God's promises and, and do this sort of in their own way, in their own timing. And God's like, no, just walk in my way, do what you know to do, but trust me, I told you, I'll make you the father of many nations and through your family. And so eventually this comes to fruition in the form uh, of this covenant of circumcision. Fast forward another 13 years. So now it's been 25 years of trying to have kids and God says, I want you to do this. And every basically 13-year-old boy and older has to do this. And this will be the sign. And then he says, and this is in verse 21, uh, and in a year from now, you'll give birth to a sign. Now, or a, a son. This will be the son of my promise. Okay, why is this so significant? If you can just do the math, we know that it takes about nine months of conception, gestation before a son can be born. Medically speaking, to do a sort of ancient kind of surgical procedure, it would take at least three months to be able to be sexually capable of being able to conceive again. And yet God is saying, in a year from now, you will have the son. We, we've been trying for 25 years. And now you're saying to circumcise all the men, including me, and in one year's time, which leaves about a week to conceive. Who is getting the credit? Who is authoring life? Who is it coming from but God alone, unmistakable? And here God shows up in the most obvious and overt ways. And so eventually Isaac shows up. And I would just say this, God wants to use your family. When we talk about being in this salvation experience, when we talk about pursuing God, God wants to use your family. The one you came from, the one that you're currently participating in and maybe still creating, and maybe even the one that you're not related to, i.e. a family of faith. This is really important to understand because faith needs a strong commitment to community so that we can actually see the people of God have a living practice for faith. And the goal is that this partnership would extend to everyone else. Now, I want to review something that some of you have heard me talk about in days past, and that is the picture of what it means to be in community as a family in ancient times. Now, this was not the case with every single family, but many, especially within the Galilean region, would live in a complex known as an insula. 
An insula would be, have like a center courtyard and then it would have many structures that would just be added on and built on around this center courtyard. And what would happen is you would literally have an extended family of faith that would begin to live in tight-knit, in-proximity community. In other words, when a son gets married, he adds on to his father's house. And in father's house means that there's going to be aunts and uncles, cousins, there's going to be brothers and sisters and grandparents, multi-generational. And this became the primary place that you were to learn the family trade, the values, the theology, the beliefs, the convictions, all of this would come because you would be in an extended family environment. And then if you were maybe new in marriage, there was always going to be someone further along that could come alongside you and encourage you and give you wisdom and support. If you were having trouble pulling out your hair with little kids, there was going to be someone who'd parented longer than you. And this was the picture of what it meant to be in a community of faith. Now, in this context, it just happened to be biologically related, but I think the metaphor, the picture, is a vivid illustration of what God intended his church to be, where, where elderly were celebrated with wisdom, and then there was young that had these unique perspectives that would keep anyone from, quote, growing old. There was something that was built into the fabric of a faith community where, as an extended family, we had accountability, um, we learned the trade, we learned the beliefs, but there would be an ongoing place of support that when someone was sick, there could be a picking up. But guess what? Like any family, there was going to be a division of labor. You couldn't just take from the family. At some point, you were going to have to find your chore, your responsibility to care for the good of the family. So when we make church out to be an event that we attend without any contribution, we're missing the idea of what it means to be in faith and community, to work out our salvation. God didn't want these holding stations called church. God wanted communities of faith that people could learn to find their contribution as well as realize their potential. Is partnership hard? Yes. Is covenant hard? Of course. Is marriage hard? Yes. None of it is supposed to be done in isolation. So when we talk about being a family of faith, I mean that in a spiritual sense and a biological sense. And if you find yourself here tonight in a broken marriage or as a single person, the point is this. We all belong to this family of faith that's supposed to be a place where we also give and receive the kind of support needed to work out our salvation. That's, in effect, what God was doing from there. And so let me just kind of wrap up by saying, here's what we begin to learn um, from, from this picture of what it means to be a family of faith. And again, I mean that in both a spiritual sense, like our church, but I also mean that as, uh, as your home. And so number one, we learn that salvation is both personal and shared. There is no isolation that actually materializes into something transformational. 
for us to grow, I, I've always needed, like I can read self-help books, I can be super self-disciplined, I can have my quiet times, I can memorize scripture, but at the end of the day, the thing that's going to be most impactful is when I am both finding someone further along in marriage, in career, in faith, but I'm also bringing someone along. Salvation, for me to actually have a vibrant faith, is knowing that it's both personal, God calls me, but it has to be shared. So what I'm trying to do with Mission Hills is give you not only a practice, but a vocabulary so that you can articulate and, and practice a living faith. The second thing that I would simply say is that salvation is both a decision and a process. Again, nothing of which you can work out in isolation, but you have a, a decision where you say, I do. I want to make Christ Lord of my life. And technically you're safe, saved, but then you have to work through what does it mean to keep making Christ Lord of our lives? Letting him be the center of our finances, letting him be the center of our home, of our parenting, of our weekends. Um, and so this is an important part of what it means to work out this covenant partnership with God. And then I would also say this, when God spoke to Noah or when God spoke to Abraham, he was also representing a larger community. And this is, this is the picture of what it means for us. A grouping of people is needed to redeem and restore our broken humanity. The idea people are like, oh, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. I just, I'm going to go be with God on my own in nature. I'm like, that's not bad. That's just not enough. And I promise you, it's not going to be transformational, which was God's intent um, and then lastly, I would simply say that community is to be set apart. So when we see circumcise all the men, what we're doing, circumcision was a sign because what it did is it represented God's control and God's faithfulness. There would be no shortcuts. And while we're waiting for God to answer, provide, or bless, we're simply called to be faithful with what we know to do. Is following Christ easy? Nope. Um, is it good? Yeah. And sometimes good is hard. Um, is marriage beautiful? Yes. Is marriage work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it is when we choose to enter into the covenant relationship with God is that he sets us apart. He makes a, a, a distinction that I will never harm all of creation again. But then he's looking for people. And he starts with the family unit. And so if you move away from family, biologically speaking, you rely on the family of Christ. If you grew up in a home that didn't actually express Christ or maybe was abusive or, or was somehow um, toxic and, and it gave you an aversion, then you need to be in community so that that can have a different picture. But that's the invitation that Jesus gives us uh, ultimately in the new covenant. But I want you to understand that the, the backbone of scripture is this covenant relationship. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to look at a couple more of these pivotal covenants so we can understand how God is not only courting us into relationship, not to just flirt with him, but to be in, in this consummated marriage with God because he wants us to work out our salvation in healing broken humanity.
And so I want to invite you now just to pray with me, and we're going to have a time to respond both first in worship and then in communion. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would just minister to us as we think about what it means to be uh, in in an intimate relationship with you. I thank you for Abraham, his family. I thank you that we've been grafted into that family and how we are on the um, receiving end of, um, of the father of many nations and how we've been part of that spiritual seed and you have blessed us and all we would say is please Lord, Make our lives a blessing to others. May the blessing, the abundance, the faithfulness that you have shown us not rest and die in us, but may it flow through us. So I pray that you would help us to search our own hearts now as we continue to gather and worship. I pray that you would reveal your love for us during these times as we celebrate in worship and communion tonight. In Jesus' name we pray.